Thank you, Scott. And uh, that passage ends with vultures gorging themselves. We're really just going to talk about that this morning. Um, vultures. No, not really. Um, there's a lot in this passage. There's a lot in, the, in these chapters. And as you guys have probably seen as we've walked through Revelation, it's like every week there's just kind of so much packed into all these things that we're talking about. And I'm going to do my best this morning just to, uh, there's, there's, there's really one very simple truth that comes out of these. Uh, there's so many truths, really, but there's one very simple one that I, I really want to key in on this morning. So, um, but before we get to that part, um, that has to do with who we are as the church and how we um, are really invited into the presence of Jesus in the end. Um, we have to do a little bit of work. And we're going to talk about what Scott just read and, and even this idea of the millennium. If you guys have read Revelation before, you, you know about this millennium idea of Jesus' reign for a thousand years and Satan being bound for a thousand years. And all this kind of interesting imagery. Um, so we're going to talk about that this morning. I'll tell you what, let's pray together. And then we're going to just dive in, okay? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for, um, man, thank you for this, this book, Revelation. Thank you for this letter. Um, what, a, what a gift it is to us. Um, God, help me this morning to speak what is true, to speak clearly, and teach the truth. God, help these men and women, young people sitting in front of me to hear your word and uh, not to hear from me as much as they just hear from you and what you would have to say to our hearts today. Um, help us not to be afraid of what we see in this letter, uh, but to actually be encouraged and emboldened to live the life that you have called us to live, a life of invitation. Invitation into your presence before your throne and at your table forever. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, <clears throat> doing youth ministry is interesting. I am the youth pastor here at Eastridge, and uh, I, I love youth ministry. I've done it for 11, 12 years now, really even a little bit longer than that, but full-time 11, 12 years. And um, it's, it's funny doing youth ministry because you see, <clears throat> excuse me, you see uh, so many students that kind of come through this ministry, and obviously, like, when they first start coming, they're sixth graders, seventh graders, usually, you know, pretty young kids. Um, and by the time they graduate, obviously, they're 18 years old or whatever. But sometimes, you know, you kind of, there have been times where I haven't seen a student for a little while, you know what I mean? Uh, maybe, maybe, they, maybe their family left, like, when they were in ninth grade or seventh grade or something like that. But then I see them at some point again. And usually, especially with the boys, I'm always just, like, blown away. I'll see these kids that I have in my mind, like, you Adults, y'all know what I'm talking about, where you have like a person in your mind that was a young kid, and then you see them again, they're like this grown-up human being, you know what I mean? Like, I'll see kids that I didn't know, you know, I knew them in sixth grade, and then I see them again when they're like 23, and they got like tattoos, and like piercings, and they're married, or they got a child, and I'm like, what is happening in the world, you know what I mean? Like, people just grow up, and it's crazy, um, and, and, the, and the picture that we get of Jesus kind of early on. And, and what Scott read here um, is this amazing, and I don't want to say it's like Jesus growing up, but really what we see is this, this newer, like different, unique picture of Jesus that we don't see in the Gospels, right? We don't yet get to see uh, this Jesus in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. In Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we have the picture of Jesus, like obviously Christmas time, and we get baby Jesus, we get manger, silent night Jesus, we see Jesus grow up a little bit there, and, and obviously we see him as the meek and humble servant that he was on this earth. And I want to kind of say this, that Jesus really, he, he's always, 
his nature as the meek and humble servant of men, that's always been true of him. But what's also always been true of him is what we see right here in, in Revelation 19, starting in verse 11, where he says, I saw in heaven uh, standing open, I, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. This is Jesus. That he's seeing. And again, I want to make sure we understand this as we read through Revelation. What we're seeing John say is, I'm seeing these windows, right? I'm kind of looking through these windows. It's not necessarily chronological reading. And I'm going to get to that in a second again as we talk about the millennium. But it's not necessarily chronological reading. As much as it is, I'm, I'm seeing a new picture, right? So he now sees this rider on a white horse. He says his name is Faithful and True. What is, what is Faithful and True all about? That Jesus is always true to his word. And we know this to be true throughout scripture that God has never lied, right? God never lies. Paul says this in Titus, that God never lies. He has never broken a promise. He has always been faithful and true. And Jesus being God has always been faithful and true. The scripture said that uh, through, through the prophets in the Old Testament, where he would be born and how he would be born and who he would be and what he would be, all these things and all these things came true. He said that he would preach and that he would heal and he would forgive and he would release from bondage and all those things happened. He said, Jesus told his disciples, I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be tried and I'm going to be killed. And all of those things happened. He died as he said that he would die. He said that he would resurrect. And he resurrected. Jesus is faithful and true always. And he said that he would return again to reign. That he would return. And so, no, that hasn't happened yet. But we see throughout the Bible and throughout history that he is faithful and true. And so we are able to look back. Guys, this is how this works, right? We're able to look back on the things that he has said that have come to pass. And so the things that he said that have not yet come to pass, what can we deduce from that? That he's still faithful and true. And it's going to happen, right? So he is faithful and true. He says he judges and makes war. And, and again, this is kind of, no more is this little baby Jesus, right? This is no more Mr. Nice Jesus. This is the Jesus who comes back to judge and make war. Again, he was always this Jesus, but in, in his ministry on earth, he kind of laid this uh, privilege of judging and making war aside to be the humble and meek servant, Paul says in Philippians 2, that he emptied himself. And really, that's what that means, right? He didn't stop being this, but he kind of laid that privilege aside. But now we get to see, man, he is the judge who comes to make war. And it says that he will do this in righteousness. That when Jesus comes to finally end all of this stuff, all the evil, all the death, all the sin, and he ends up making war on every bad thing that exists in this universe, Satan and his demons and all that comes with the forces of evil, he will do this in righteousness. He will always be right. He will never sin. He will never do any evil in his war against the devil and the devil's servants. This is a holy and just war waged by a holy and just God, Jesus Christ, waging the war against the forces of evil. Then he gives this kind of physical description of Jesus, and it's just incredible. I love this description. He says, verse 12, he says, his eyes are like blazing fire. That just means what? He, he, he sees all things. Right, his gaze pierced. You cannot hide from Jesus. You can't, you can't do it. His eyes are like blazing fire. He says, on his head are many crowns, or a version might say many diadems. 
And I like to think, and I, and I think the interpretation of that is really um, that's, that's our crowns that we've given to Jesus. In, in the book of Isaiah, actually, Isaiah says in Isaiah 62.3 that we would be a crown in God's hand one day. That you, like the, the, the crowns that John is seeing on the head of Jesus. It's like Jesus has given these crowns, like the crown of our salvation, the crown of our righteousness. And what have we done? We have laid them down. We see this in Revelation 5, that we have laid our crowns down before him. And now he has them. And he wears them as like his glory. And we are the glory of Jesus in him. And he, he wears our crowns. I just love that picture that he now wears all these crowns on his head. And it says, his name, he has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. And it's just kind of this unfathomable mystery of the Godhead, right? There's, there's, there's this idea that, man, I think maybe even in eternity, we will always be learning Jesus. Like there's just so much mystery to him and so much depth to him, right? And, and I just love the idea that even in this moment, it's John, who is like Jesus's best friend, by the way, when he was doing his ministry on earth, John is seeing this Jesus whom he knows so well. And even John can't read this name that Jesus has. It's some kind of mystery about him still, even in that. So I, I just like the idea that maybe for all eternity, we will learn Jesus. And maybe that's why it takes eternity, right? That there is no bottom to his mysteries. And we get to learn him forever, right? It says that he's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. So uh, that just simply means he's already won some kind of battle, right? He's already been in a battle, and he's about to go into a battle, but there's already some sort of battle he's won. Now, some people interpret this as that, that, that's somebody else's blood. Someone interpret this, that's his own blood. But either way, whatever blood his robe has been dipped in, the point is Jesus is the victor, right? You, you come out of a battle with a robe dipped in blood. You have won a battle. You have won a victory. You are victorious, and that's the point here. And then it says he is the word of God. That's his title, the word of God. That's one of John's uh, favorite ways to phrase Jesus, who Jesus is. In John uh, chapter 1 and in 1 John, both of these places, John describes Jesus as the word of God. He says, in the beginning, John 1, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. The word was God. He's talking about Jesus. So what does that mean? That Jesus is the, the word of God. Jesus is the full expression of the mind and the will of God. That's who he is the word of God. And he says a sharp sword comes from his mouth. That Jesus actually needs no real physical sword. His sword is his word, right? And we see this in Ephesians 6, right? That we bear the sword of the spirit as we fight this spiritual battle on this earth, right? We bear the sword of the spirit. And it says the sword of the spirit is what? The word of God. It's the word of Christ. And the sword comes out of his mouth. And in the end, when Jesus wages this battle, what does he do? He steps on the battlefield, and it says he does nothing other than just speak. He speaks the word, and all the forces of evil are done with, right? Jesus' word is powerful and active. And it says there's a name written on his robe and on his thigh, and it's this, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. This Jesus, y'all, this Jesus is an absolute terror to the dragon, and the beasts. They have attempted to ruin his kingdom. 
We talked about the beast a couple weeks ago. They've attempted to take his people away from him. They've attempted to usurp his authority and ruin his kingdom. And then this Jesus shows up. Thigh tattoo Jesus. I like that Jesus. Right? This Jesus shows up. And he's like, nah. Right? This dude is a terror. And then we're going to get into the millennium here. So let's talk about the millennium. This is chapter 20, verse 1 through 7. I'm just going to read this real quick. He says, I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. There's your millennium. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. I'm actually going to, I'm going to stop there. I know we got a little bit more on the screen. I don't know, we're just going to pause there. So John sees this dragon, right? Uh, Satan. John sees the dragon bound up and thrown, it says, into the abyss. Um, some would just translate that as hell or the, the void, the darkness, whatever. He's thrown down into that and he's kind of bound up for a thousand years. Now, if you are a Revelation scholar of any kind, you know this is one of the most contended kind of parts of how people interpret Revelation, right? When is this 1,000 years? How does this play out, right? When is Satan bound for 1,000 years? Now, here's the kind of main views on this, okay? So what I'm going to do, I'm just going to show you a slide here. It's going to have the three main views of this millennium so that we just kind of Get, get our minds around it for a second, okay? This is how people might read this. And again, this is just simply based on how you kind of see the events of Revelation unfolding. And let me say this before I say that. There are people that, who are kind of in each one of these camps who are faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, okay? Absolutely Christians, absolutely going to heaven, okay? And we're not, we're not contending in that level where we're going, you know what, if you're post-millennial or whatever, I, I think you're going to hell or whatever. That's not the case, okay? We're simply saying there are different ways you might interpret how this thousand years happens, okay? So post-millennialism just simply means this. Jesus will return after post-millennial. He will return after 1,000-year period of unrestrained gospel victory for the church. So there's going to be a thousand-year period where Satan is bound, and then Jesus will return. So those who are in the post-millennial camp would say, okay, there's going to be some probably, maybe literal, maybe not literal thousand-year period where the gospel is just unable to be stopped in this world, where like it, it, it pretty much is the, where you know, Satan has absolutely no influence at all in the world. And they would actually believe that probably a lot of the Jews will come to Christ in this time as well during this thousand-year period. Um, but here's the thing about post-millennialism. It's actually kind of fallen off in the last hundred or so years. Um, it was actually really popular, 17, 1800s. It, it really gained a lot of popularity with Christian scholars. Um, World War One and Two really hurt post-millennialism because people started to go, okay, maybe we're in the thousand years. This is unrestrained peace and gospel's moving. And then World War One and Two happened. They're like, oh, maybe not. You know, it's kind of ugly. So maybe, uh, who knows, right? Pre-millennialism, kind of the opposite, right? Jesus will return before a 1,000-year period of unrestrained gospel victory for the church, okay? There's a fly up there. He's reading. Do y'all see that? He's like checking it out. Um, so Jesus will return before the 1,000-year period of unrestrained gospel victory. So people who are premillennial will generally think, okay, it's going to get a lot worse before it gets better, okay? Postmillennial would go, it's going to get a lot better 
kind of before it gets worse. Because then after the thousand years, Satan's released for it says for a short period of time, right? And then he deceives and then kind of Jesus ends it all. But premillennial kind of goes, you know what? It's just going to get bad and bad and bad and bad and bad. And then Jesus is coming back and he's going to set up a, a reign for a thousand years. And then he's going to let Satan back out for a little while. And Satan's going to get to do something. And then Jesus is just going to end it all. Okay. And again, you can read Revelation and kind of see either one of those views. And then there's amillennial. Ah just simply means not. Okay, so not a literal thousand-year period. The church age now is the millennium in which Satan is bound but still has influence. I want to be clear. I, I'm all millennial, okay? I'm all millennial. Uh, a lot of us who are on staff are all millennial. I think we have some others that are post or pre, um, but I'm definitely all millennial. And I kind of read that in a spiritualist way as, as well as I read through Revelation. Again, I'm not saying I am right and I know that 100%. I'm saying this is what I see because when I read scripture, I see things like Jesus saying, the kingdom is here now. I've come to, to bring the kingdom. He says in Luke 17, it's in your midst, right? This kingdom is here. I, you know, I see that. I see like Ephesians chapters 2 and chapter 3 and 4 where, where Paul is making this argument that Jesus is already seated on his throne and we are seated with him on his throne. So I kind of read that. And I'm going, well, you know, I, I don't think there's a, a literal thousand year period, but it just seems like I think that church age, right? Like we are living in the kingdom now. And I actually see both sides of the post and the pre because the post-millennial, again, post-millennial people say, okay, the gospel's going to like, like advance unrestrained for a thousand years. And the pre-millennial people go, well, yeah, Jesus has to come back first. And I'm kind of looking at this going, well, what I see in the world right now is this. I see the gospel being unable to be stopped by Satan. I believe that that's true. How do I know that that's true? Because for the past 2,000 years, two millenniums, for the past 2,000 years, the gospel has been advancing. Has it not? There's 2 billion Christians in the world right now. It started with 12, right? And I, and I just see the gospel being like, Satan cannot stop the gospel now. And yet, he has influence now. I think we see that too, right? He does, have, he does tempt um, some, some scholars would kind of say it like he is a, he, he, he's almost like a mob boss in prison, right? Like he's in prison. He's bound up in the sense that he can't stop the gospel. But what is he doing? He's kind of like sending out commands into the earth through his demons and through like it, the powers and principalities that Paul talks about in Ephesians 6 to tempt, to deceive, to discourage, to distract, right? To draw us away from this kingdom. Um, so anyway, there, there's your, there's your kind of overview of that millennium. But here's the, here's the main thing. And I want y'all to hear this. To remember this, our obedience to the Great Commission is key. No matter where you fall, premillennial, postmillennial, amillennial, whatever, however you view that, our obedience to Jesus in the Great Commission, we all agree on this, that until Jesus returns, I expect when I'm done saying this, there are going to be some amens. Until Jesus returns, we will go make disciples. Okay, yes, right? That's, everybody agrees on that if you're a Christian. You gotta agree on that because that's what Jesus said to do. And look, if Jesus returns like on a post-millennial timeline and not a pre-millennial timeline, I promise you all the pre-millennial and the amillennial people are not gonna be like, oh man, Jesus, wait, 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 you're not supposed to come back yet, right? We're gonna go, yes, you got it. Post-millennials, y'all nailed it, right? That's what we're gonna do. We're not gonna care, okay? The point is we can read it a little differently and we can agree that obedience to the Great Commission is key. Let's go make 
disciples. All right. So let's go back a little bit again, because this I don't think there's necessarily chronological stuff we need to be working through, but more so just what is John seeing? Back to chapter 19. In the midst of all this craziness, there's a lot of craziness going on in these last several chapters. And in the midst of all this, what is Jesus doing with his people? What is he doing with his people? Let's read chapter 19, verses 5 through 9, or 6 through 9. Here's what it says. It says, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints, it says. Verse 9. Then the angel said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, These are the words of God. At this I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, Do not do it. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. He says, Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. What is Jesus doing with his people in the midst of this craziness, in the midst of this battle that's now being waged? where it says that Jesus comes as judge and warrior and his eyes are blazing fire and he's got a sword coming out of his mouth and he's about to go make war on the forces of evil in this universe. What are we doing in the midst of that? We're sitting at a table. We're, we're feasting. We're celebrating. We're worshiping. We're communing together with one another and with and with Jesus, we're having a meal. Uh, the Bible says it's the wedding feast of the Lamb. What's interesting is um, God has kind of always oriented his people around food, around meals. Um, if you think back to the Old Testament, you think back to the book of Exodus. Exodus is uh, it's obviously a, a very long story, and as God is trying to release his his uh, enslaved people from slavery in Egypt. The Egyptians refuse to let them go. Pharaoh won't let them go. And he sends plague after plague after plague. And Pharaoh just continues to be obstinate and hard-hearted. But what does God do at the very end? He sends one more plague to wipe out all the firstborn of Egypt. And it's just a scene of like terror. And, 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 and man, just darkness and scary stuff going on. As the, it says the spirit of death goes through the whole nation of Egypt to kill the firstborn sons of every family. But what does God tell his people? He says, I, I want you to do something. I want you to take a lamb. I want you to kill the lamb. I want you to put its blood on the outside of your door frames. And then I want you to go and I want you to eat that lamb inside. And you eat it with, like he tells them how to do it. Eat it with certain things, certain ways and all of that. And so while God goes through the nation of Egypt to, to enact this last plague on the obstinate and sinful Egyptians, his people are doing what? They're sitting around tables eating. What does Jesus do? 
right before he's crucified and killed. What does he do right before his arrest? He, he gets his disciples together for the Passover, by the way, which that Exodus was the Passover. He gets his disciples together and he takes them to a room and he leads them to a table and he prepares for them a meal. Because God has always oriented his people around meals, around food. I actually wonder, is there, is there a volunteer that would mind coming up here for just a second? Anybody want to actually come up? There is real food here, and it's really good, like homemade bread, meats and cheeses, all sorts of things. Anybody want to come up here for a second? I actually really would love somebody to just walk on up here. Yes, come on, come on. Kelsey, come on. Have a seat right there in the middle. Can you just sit right there in the middle? Do you want some orange juice? Do you like orange juice? You want some? You're good? I'm, I'm going to pour you some. You don't even have to drink it. I just want to do it. <laughs> here. So, and look, you are free. Honestly, you are free to eat anything here. There is bread. There's good fresh butter. There's grapes and fruit and meat and cheese. Little pastry things right there. She's probably like, I don't want to eat in front of everybody. But here's what God, here's what God always does for us, right? That he prepares these tables for us. In the midst of hardship and trial. Can, can I ask you a question? I know y'all probably can't hear Kelsey, but you don't have to tell me what. But it, I would guess there's probably some difficult things in your life right now. Is that true? Okay. Um, that's probably true of anybody, anybody in this room, right? There's probably difficult things going on in life. Hard things. Things that sometimes are sad. Things that you pray about. Things that you have to seek the Lord in. This right here is the invitation always from God in the midst of that stuff, in the midst of the chaos of Revelation 19 and 20, really Revelation 13, 14, 15, so like all these chapters of just craziness. And it's like, what we can't even get our minds around it really. And again, I think as we read through Revelation, some of it is so crazy. I think because the point is we don't even necessarily have to understand it all. We just need to see who's ruling over it all, right? And in the midst of all that, he just says, if the people of God are rejoicing and they're singing, and we've already done that this morning, I thank God, and we're just clapping and we're singing, even in the midst of hard things, even in the midst of things that in life that we can't make sense of. And when God's fighting these battles all around us, which he always is, he is just constantly inviting us in to come and have a seat. Is there anybody else that wants to actually have two more chairs? I would love two more people so raise your hand. Kelsey, will you pick whoever? Just point. Just point. I'm in the back. Okay. And one more. Just point. Whoever else? Somebody? Okay. Ah, Tim. Come on, buddy. Have a seat, y'all. Look, and, and, and here's what I want to kind of orient us around this morning, too. Is that not only does God invite us in, and, and not only does he kind of bring us into his story and his meal, right? Hey, what's your name? Jefferson, good to meet you. Um, not only does he kind of bring us into this meal, you guys eat whatever y'all want. I'm serious. Y'all can, can have it all. Eat a banana. I don't care. Um, not only does God bring us into this meal, but what does he then do? He gives us the opportunity to invite others into it, right? To invite others into it, to bring them in, to know that there is a table prepared before us. You guys know Psalm 23, right? Psalm 23, one of the greatest psalms that people love and that people memorize. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. It makes me lie down in green pastures. What are green pastures to sheep? 
It's food, right? And he says at the end of that psalm, what does he say? He prepares a what? A table before me in the presence of my enemies. And guys, the point of that is not that, you know, we're going to sit and eat and, you know, and mock the people who don't like us in the world. The point of that is God is fighting the battles in our lives. God is working it out. He is sitting on the throne. He's winning every battle that there is to fight. And even as we go through the things, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to guess you guys are going through probably things in life that aren't always easy, right? And as we go through those things, he still just invites us in to sit, to come, to eat, to enjoy, to feast, and to know that he is good. This is a meal in the midst of violence and bloodshed and war going on all around us. And I don't know if you guys know this, but y'all, this, like however you read Revelation, and I kind of read this in, in a way that's kind of saying like, this has already happened, what we see in these chapters. It is currently happening, and it will happen in the end, finally, where Jesus wipes out all evil. But I actually think this is a picture of the Last Supper where Jesus sits his people down for the feast of the lamb. And then he goes to the cross to make war against the forces of evil and death by his own death. And, and this is what we get to do in the midst of that. Now, I want to be clear. Um, just because we, we say, you know, we are sitting and we are eating and we are enjoying the feast that God gives us. Don't hear me saying this morning that Christianity is a lazy religion. It's not. It's not. I, I'm reading a book right now called Holiness by J.C. Ryle, and he, he actually says this, that something is true. Two things are true about every Christian inside of us. There is a war that is waging, but there's also a peace that is unspeakable. There is a war and a peace in the life of every Christian. And what he just simply means by that is we are always at war with sin, in our own lives and in this world. We're always warriors of Jesus. The New Testament is full of this language, that we are soldiers, we are fighters, we are warriors, we are runners, and we're going, and we're telling people about Jesus. We're sharing the gospel. We're loving our neighbors. We're serving them. We're giving. We are pouring out our lives. Like Paul says, I pour out my life like a drink offering on the sacrifice of your faith. Christianity is not a lazy religion. But understand this, that we don't do those things for, like for hoping to get some kind of victory. We don't do those things so that we have a seat at the table. We do those things because we have a seat at the table, right? That we get to go out there having been filled up in here. And I don't just mean that church, okay? But this is a great place to do this. But man, every day of our lives, we fill ourselves up. We, we dine on Jesus, Y'all, he's our host and he's our meal every day, right? And then we go and yes, we do fight and we strive and we work. Christians should be the hardest working people in this world, but we don't do it hoping that we're going to have some kind of victory. We do it because Jesus has the victory. And so when he says, my, my yoke is easy, my burden is light, that's what he means. Yeah, there's hard work as a Christian for sure. But man, we know who's already won. And in the midst of that, in this picture, John just says, man, I see Jesus fighting this battle with the sword of his mouth. And in the midst of that, we are sitting, we are singing, and we are eating. Because you know why? I think in a world 
that is so full of stress, so full of anger, so full of deception, so full of destruction, y'all. Listen, to be able to sit and eat with peace in your heart is the most rebellious thing you can do in this world. To be able to feast on Jesus in the midst of chaos, right? You guys can have a seat. Thank you all for coming on up here. Um, Y'all clap for them just for volunteering. I appreciate that. So here's, um, here's what I want you to hear this morning, if nothing else. I want you to hear this, that the kingdom of God, before, in the kingdom of God, before you're given an expectation, you're given an invitation. The kingdom of God, y'all, it's not first and foremost expectation, it's invitation. It's not first and foremost, go and do. It's not first and foremost, fight and run and strive. It's not first and foremost, those things. It's first and foremost, come and sit and eat and rest in Christ. And then again, yeah, then we go. But first and foremost, it's come and eat, right? That's the kingdom of God. And y'all, that's why every week here at East Church, we take communion. This is what communion is. It is our moment every week where as a family, as a gathering, we reorient ourselves around this. We reorient ourselves around Christ. Remembering that whatever, listen, okay, I know there are things that this past week were just chaos in your life. Heck, it's December. <laughs> it's Christmas time, right? I know things are hectic. They're chaos a little bit right now for a lot of us. The fact that you're here this morning, and that's an act of rebellion against that chaos, against Satan and his deceptions, and everything out there in, the, in, the, in what Paul calls the, the dark places in this world that would try to draw your faith and your heart and your mind and your attention and your worship away from Jesus. And so this morning, we just come to kind of center, refocus, and reorient ourselves on Jesus and this meal that he gives us. How good is God? How good is Jesus that he gives us something actually physical to do every week to remind ourselves of his goodness? Something physical, something that we actually eat and drink. If you have communion this morning, I just want you to pull it out. And just to be real clear, what communion is, again, this is for those of us who are the ones invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb who are already followers of Jesus. And I just want to, look, maybe this morning, you really don't even know what this is about. And I want to ask you, kind of just observe what we're doing and understand that this is really what we're doing. I know it's just, you know, nah, whatever. But this is this. Y'all get that? This, this is what we're doing. Orienting ourselves around the feast, around Jesus. And this is a picture of what is to come. Guys, I, I believe one day, like this illustration is going to become reality. We're going to sit with Jesus. Melissa Hay did a great job putting this together, but I don't, whatever Jesus has, there's going to be cheesecake and tiramisu. I know that. Um, and it's going to be, and the point of all that, you know what the point of food is? I mean, the Bible's full of that imagery. You know what the point of food is? You know the reason God created food? To give us a way to think about the sweetness of God, the goodness of God. 
Honey, milk, bread, water, all these things used throughout Scripture for one reason to point us to his goodness and his grace for us. So we take communion as Jesus told us to, to remember him. So if you are a believer, um, we're going to do this together. I'm going to give you guys a moment here. So you can go ahead and open it if you want to do that if you haven't. Um, but I'm going to give us a moment here, just like we always do. The slide's going to play. And this is an opportunity. Listen, this is an opportunity to reorient yourself on Christ. If you need to repent of sin and lay that down before him, unconfessed sin, do that now. And remember that he has come. He is the one who is faithful and true. With eyes of fire, with a sword coming out of his mouth. The king of kings and lord of lords who reigns forevermore. He sees all, he knows all, and yet still he invites you in. So let's take a moment to remember that this morning. And then um, I'll lead us through taking communion together. So we have um, bread and cup body and blood of Jesus just to again to reorient us as Christians every week that whatever chaos whatever feels like war is going out going on out there we come together as the body and like this this says we we have sung hallelujah for our Lord God almighty reigns let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the lamb has come y'all the kingdom has come we get to sit, we are invited into the wedding feast. So if you are a follower of Jesus this morning, let's take um, this bread, which is his body given for us. And let's take this cup, his blood poured out for our sins. Pray with me. God, thank you so much for your grace. What amazing grace it is to know that we have a seat at the table in Christ. And we are not left out in the cold. We are not wanderers anymore. We are not orphans. We are not dead in our sins and transgressions, but alive in Christ. And God, as the war wages until your son returns, However, whenever that looks, whenever that is, let us be faithful to Jesus and just continue to sit at this table and to live from this table. To live from the sustenance given to us in your word, in prayer, by your spirit, and from the community of one another. That we would just eat together every day, feasting on Jesus Christ, our Savior knowing that he has won the war and he will finish it in the end. We thank you, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, last thing, just to say this in, in, in closing. If you're a non-believer, and I just say that term, I just mean you haven't given your life to Jesus. You haven't just surrendered yourself over to Christ and his lordship, the one that we talked about this morning, um, Listen, you're being invited in. Again, I had Kelsey just kind of bring up two more. That's the point, right? That's evangelism, Christians. That's us every day to kind of bring other people to this table. And if you don't know Jesus yet, listen, no, you're not at the table yet, but I'm saying this to you. You're invited. Just come. 
Just come. The kingdom of God is not first an expectation. It's an invitation. Come. Come to Jesus. Okay? Um, and if you would like to talk more about that, I'm just going to hang out right here. Okay? And if you don't know Jesus, I'd love to have a conversation with you about that this morning. I promise you, before you walk out these doors, you could come, metaphorically, sit at this table. Okay? You could sit at this table with us and know that Jesus is your Lord and Savior and you are part of the victory. Amen? All right, y'all. Thank y'all so much. Merry Christmas. I hope y'all have an awesome, awesome Sunday. Thank y'all for being here.